One of the things that we've been talking about is how the global economic system is fairly unequal. There are richer countries or global north countries, and then there are poorer countries or global south countries. We've even discussed how companies and corporations in the richer countries seem to control or guide the system. But there's a pretty basic question which is worth asking, which is why are the rich countries rich and why are the poor countries poor in the first place? Why is Pakistan poor when the United Kingdom or the United States are rich? It wasn't always like this. So if you watch the Turkish drama Arturul Ghazi, which I do, uh, you probably know that Arturul's son, Usman, went on to become the first ruler of the Ottoman Empire. And that empire was preeminent in the world for a very long time. It was certainly outperforming Europeans on political, social, cultural, scientific, and economic measures. And if you look at other empires in the world, particularly the Mughal Empire, which was ruling India, and then various Chinese empires, for a long time, you could justifiably consider them to be the centers of the world economy. They were extremely important. This is in the 1500s up to the 1700s even. Scholars like Kenneth Pomeranz say that up to the 1700s, people lived in a world of surprising resemblances, which means that living standards and access to technologies and stuff like that was pretty similar for people in China versus people in Western Europe. But that changes pretty quickly. By the middle of the 1800s, European economies led by the British were clearly dominant. In other words, there was a divergence or a separation where some countries achieved very high economic growth and others less so. Some became rich and others became poor. So how do you get from a world of surprising resemblances to the great divergence? Most people would agree that the Industrial Revolution was key. Rather than individuals manufacturing things mostly by hand, which is what manufacture actually means, literally it means making stuff by hand, manufacturing was now done with the help of more sophisticated machines that saved on labor costs. These machines could be run using water at first, or increasingly the portable power of coal. And these emerging technologies allowed for greater economies of scale, which we've discussed. You could bring down the cost of production of each good as the scale of production grew. This meant that you could produce more stuff and you could sell more stuff to markets domestically and all over the world. It also meant generalized economic growth, which meant money for governments from tax revenue and stuff like that. And they could invest that in public works or education if they so choose but actually it took them a long time to choose to do that kind of stuff, which is a different discussion. But this pushes the question back. If some societies industrialized and others actually de-industrialized, their manufacturing went down, then why did that happen? The field of global economic history asks exactly these kinds of questions, but the answers can be very different. The debate has been going on for a long time. Some scholars follow the famous German sociologist Max Weber to say that there was something special about the mindset of Western Europeans in particular, something that happened to do with how religion was practiced by them. And if you think about it, this is actually the way that we in Pakistan speak about our own underdevelopment. We'll say stuff like, 
we blame it on our own mindset and our cultural habits. But there are other ways of engaging with this question. The kind of cultural explanation may not be the most convincing one, or at least it's not for me. One such explanation revolves around institutions or the rules of the game. Now, you have to understand the way that we use the term institution in everyday speaking is pretty different from how economists and political scientists use this word. Political scientists and economists use institution to mean the rules of the game, norms, laws, policies, stuff like that. And often these laws and policies are embedded in organizations like legislatures or parliaments. And these organizations will create and enforce those laws and policies. So there's a slight distinction between institutions and organizations. Generally, the way that we talk about institutions, we mean organizations. We might be talking about the bureaucracy, the courts, and stuff like that. Institutions are important because they govern people's behaviors. So what you can do, what you cannot do, is often determined by norms, morals, laws, policies. So what roles might institutions play in the Great Divergence? And why did Europe have those institutions, but not the Muslim world? Welcome to Introduction to Political Economy, where we look at how politics and economics interrelate but also talk about how political economy can mean a lot more than just politics and economics. Over the course of this podcast, we will be inviting scholars from different disciplines and perspectives to talk to us about their work and how they approach these kinds of questions. I am your host, Numan Ali. I'm an assistant professor of political economy at the Lahore University of Management Sciences in Pakistan. To discuss the role of culture and institutions in the Great Divergence, I spoke to Dr. Jared C. Rubin, professor of economics at Chapman University in the United States and author of the book, Rulers, Religion, and Riches, Why the West Got Rich and the Middle East Did Not. Now, this book is also available in Urdu from Mushal Publishers in Lahore, and it's called Hukumran, Mazhab, or Dolat, Maghrib Kyun Amir Hua, Mashriqe Wasta Kyun Nahi Hua. Let's hear from Dr. Rubin. I am an economic historian. My PhD is in economics um, in 2007. And most of what I do is economic history of religion, economic history of culture in the mainly the Middle East and Western Europe. And so I mainly look at either you know, Islam, Christianity, and the role that it played in long-run economic outcomes in the two regions. That's what a bulk of my research focuses on in one way, shape, or form. And with that, most of what I, I focus on within that is political economy of the two regions and how it evolved over time and how it varied within regions and the role that religion played in political economy in the two regions. So my research is not so much focused on, say, doctrine or what the role that doctrine played, whether it be Islamic doctrine or Christian doctrine or any other type of doctrine in economic outcomes or political outcomes, but mainly the role that you know, religious authorities might have played within the political economies of the region, and what effect their role had on both kind of the laws and policies that came out of those regions, but also how that then translated into long-run economic differences between the two regions. 
So that's the primary focus of bulk of my research, and that culminated in the book that we'll be talking about here that came out in 2017 called Rulers, Religion, and Riches, Why the West Got Rich and the Middle East Did Not. The subtitle there was the thing that interested me the most starting in grad school, and I really kind of found this as a thing I could study. It's well known that the Middle East was far ahead you know, when I'm really talking about like the Abbasid Empire here, so of Europe for centuries after the spread of Islam. And Europe was not just behind the Middle East, but it was behind you know, China, it was behind South Asia economically. And you know, the question that I've long been interested in then is, you know, given this, why did Europe eventually pull ahead economically? Now, you know, when, when exactly that happened is a question for debate, but you know, we know that industrialization began in Europe. And there are many causes for this. My own research does not claim that, and there was one cause, and it happened to be you know, related to religion by any means. But I've long been interested in the role that religion played in this. And again, and, and by in this, I mean the reversal of fortunes. So how do you actually get interest in this? How did you come across this topic? And, and what excites you about it in, in this age? I mean, some people might say that economic history is way back and how is it relevant or how yeah. is it relevant to the stuff that you find interesting? So I um, became interested in, in this specific topic in grad school. Mainly when I went to grad school, I thought I was going to be a macroeconomist. I was interested in, you know, the mathematics of it. And I still, I still, in some, in some respects, I'm interested in the you know, kind of mathematics of economics. But I really, uh, after a few weeks of even my first year of grad school, I realized that graduate macroeconomics was not for me. So I was planning on after my first year, which is really, really difficult. It's just, uh, yeah, the first year of grad school in economics is not something that I think most people remember fondly. I was planning on uh, quitting grad school, actually, after uh, another year in which I could have gotten my master's because I, I didn't think it was for me. And then I took a class my second year by a man who eventually became my a dissertation advisor, Avner Greif, who taught a class on institutions in economic history. And yeah, religion was something that had long interested me. I minored it in, in undergraduate and with it with kind of special interest in Islam and Islamic history, as well as Christianity and Christian history. But it was something that I never really realized economists were interested in. And so he has done research on this, on you know, this type of stuff going well back into you know, the early medieval period looking at differences in kind of both culture and religion between um, Middle East and Western and Southern Europe. And as soon as I saw that this is something that economic historians not only do, but really have insightful things to say about, I realized that broadly, this is what I would want to do with the rest of my life. I was also very lucky that another person, uh, Timur Karan, who was at USC at the time, happened to be visiting. I went to Stanford for my PhD, so he's visiting Stanford for the year. You know, very fortuitous for me. So, and he, he's one of the kind of the, the big names in what you might say the economics of Islam or the economics of Islamic history, even Islamic economic history. And so I went to him with a bunch of ideas and we quickly uh, kind of uh, became close. And he, he's also ended up being on my dissertation committee. And you know, I've, I've actually worked both with Avner and Timur since on projects, but and still is relatively understudied by economists and economic historians. There's been more research done on it. In the last decade or so, but it's still something that we have a lot to learn about, not just by economists, political scientists, yeah, other social scientists. You know, historians have had a lot to say and a lot of good things to say and a lot of important things to say. 
but I, I think it's one of these things we can all complement each other, and we do. There's just a lot out there that we don't know. So that's the, uh, I think, the backstory on how I got interested. That's actually really cool because the program that, uh, or the stream rather, that I'm teaching in is called Economics and Politics. And a lot of the students who join this stream are coming from the main economics department, and they may not enjoy the math or the math is not for them in some ways. Not not that they don't know math or they're not good at it. It's just not what they want to do. Sure. And so your story is really, really cool because I think it uh, it shows very concretely how there are other ways to be interested in economics and pursue something meaningful in this without having to maybe front load the math. Yeah, I, I would say and the math helps, of course, but there is a lot more just kind of the economic way of thinking. And, th- and this is one thing I think that helps distinguish my own work from work of particularly historians, because this has long been something historians have been interested in, and to some extent, economic historians as well. But really, yeah, the economic way of thinking is different. It's not that we come up with necessarily different answers, but I think the the way of thinking about the world, it does give you a new way of thinking about really big issues. So, yeah, I mean, I think for your students in particular really having a grasp of, you know, even basic economics. I mean, I think you could read my book and really understand it. If you've taken an introductory economics class, you'd feel comfortable with everything I say in the book, you know, in terms of, you know, the, the, the concepts are, are there. They're things that you've seen before. You know, what I like to think is that my book is one of many examples that shows the power of economics. Okay, so let's round out this kind of introduction by asking you what your frustrations and challenges are in the work that you do. I think a big frustration and challenge, I think it's actually both, is that there have been many people, not not too many, but a number of people that either in audiences or, you know, just the general public, because I'm active on Twitter, so people see stuff like that, misconstrue my work in terms of it being, say, either anti-Islam, because I'm, I'm, a, I'm simply, you know, and, and in part because I'm asking the question, what role did religion play in the re- reversal of fortunes? There have been multiple people that have assumed that I'm, this is just some type of anti-Islam book that's blaming Islam for the relative decline, economic decline of the Middle East. And it's really frustrating because it's that's not it at all. <laughs> In fact, yeah, I've already kind of prefaced when I, when I was um, just introducing the way I'm looking at it is that this is not a book about doctrine. It's not a book about the role that Islam played in or Christianity played in anything, really, um, with the exception of the role that it played in politics. Uh, and that, even then, that's not that it's not really about doctrine. It's about the role that people, you know, religious authorities played in politics and what this meant for economic uh, outcomes. You know, you asked about frustrations. It, it is frustrating because there are, you know, books out there that, um, yeah, do blame Islam or do blame something that, and it just, it's such a simplistic explanation and it's just a wrong explanation. And I guess it's frustrating because uh, when I get lumped in with people like that, it's, I don't know, maybe even slightly insulting in a way. Um, I mean, I, I guess I could I could see how just by looking at the title or maybe looking at what one person said about it, somebody might think that. But it's also one of these things, if you took you know, 
10 minutes and read like three pages of the book, you'd realize that that's not the case. So I'd say that's by far the biggest challenge and frustration of doing this type of work. I just want to reiterate what you're saying, that your book and your work does not blame Islam. It's not passing judgment on anything the Quran says or Hadith or the Sunnah. And it's very interesting because it's similar to many Muslim modernists in the 20th century who were trying to understand exactly the same question you're, you're asking, which is why the Muslim world was colonized by the British, by the French and the others. And one of the arguments that many Muslim modernists came up with was that one of the problems was the way that the ulama or the religious elites, the intelligentsia, actually held back political and economic development uh, precisely by uh, relying on certain interpretations of the text, which were not necessarily the, the correct interpretations or the only interpretations that could have worked. So, you know, to be very clear that in, in many ways, your work is also consonant with a long tradition within Islam and within Muslim thinking about the causes of, of Muslim decline, so to speak. So in that, you mentioned this thing called the modern economy. In that, I think we can be clear that your work asking why the Muslim world fell behind the European Christian world is not looking at industrialization per se, or the industrial revolution as such, but more at the kind of precursors of the industrial revolution. What came before it that maybe allowed it or enabled the industrial revolution in a good way? So what is the quote-unquote modern economy that you're talking about? How is it different from an industrial economy? And like, what is the recipe? What are the elements that I need for my modern economy? Yeah. Uh, okay, so here's a great question here. The first one I'd say to think about what the modern economy is, and we have a pretty good idea that the modern economy, or what, what and what I'll define in a few seconds, the modern economy, emerged both in Britain as well as to uh, some extent in the Netherlands, even though the Netherlands was a relatively late industrializer. What I mean by the modern economy is one that we could think of as uh, is certainly an industrial economy is, is part of the modern economy, but it's also based on trade. It's based on there being relatively advanced markets for labor and capital. It's not necessarily a purely capitalist economy. It doesn't have to be. The Soviet Union was part of the modern economy at its peak. There, there have to be more what, what we might think of as more modern inputs that, yeah, do eventually come with industrialization. So Britain really modernizes after my book ends. So my book more or less ends depending on what we're looking at. It's not purely a chronological story at all. But, you know, we could say in the 17th century, 1600 or 1700, depending on what part of the book you're really talking about. And that's before industrialization happens in England or in Britain. Um, and it's the, the point of the book, though, it's not so much that that this is why Britain industrialized. It's more about saying, all right, as of 1700, what economy was best in place or what had the, the prerequisites for industrialization, if, if I told you in 1700 that one economy in the world would industrialize and there have massive, you know, in massive economic growth would begin, especially maybe a century or yeah, about a century later, because really massive economic growth doesn't happen until the 19th century in Britain. Who would it be? By 1700, you would guess Great Britain. That was not always the case. I mean, it's not just this kind of dichotomy that I mentioned at the beginning where it's the year 1000, Western Europe's far behind, Middle East, South Asia, China. That was certainly true. And England was even more of a backwater. But even as late as 1500, you would not necessarily have said England. What my book tries to do is more about 
setting the stage? Why was England in a position where this could happen in the first place? And I also, you know, I also spent some time talking about the Dutch Republic, which beginning in the late 16th century for a good 150 years or so was the world's leading economy. It was a fundamentally different economy. And one thing I'm, I'm now realizing I just forgot to mention when I talked about a quote unquote modern economy is it's also urban. Most of the economic activity happens in urban areas. And that's mainly because urban areas end up being places where trade happens, where luxury goods are produced, or really just non-agricultural goods are produced. And the Dutch are kind of the, the precursors to this modern economy, where you know, it's, it's a very small country. It's primarily based on trade. That's why it's so wealthy. It's very urban for you know, the 16th, 16th and 17th century. And it's the same idea that I'm trying to get at, as I tried to get at with Britain, namely, why did this happen in the Dutch Republic and not other places? So one thing I also do in the book that I haven't mentioned thus far that I think is quite important is not just to say it's Europe versus the rest of the world, but it's within Europe. There's also a divergence. There's a literature and economic history that calls this the little divergence, which is mainly Northwestern Europe versus the rest of Europe. And this is also not an obvious divergence because throughout the medieval period, when Europe starts to reemerge in what is known as the commercial revolution, which happens kind of late 10th century into the 13th century, the locus of that is Northern Italy for the most part. The low countries are also part of that, but it's mainly Northern Italy. Prior to the commercial revolution, by far the wealthiest part of Europe or what we now think of as mainland Europe was Spain, which was Muslim at the time. And Spain continued to be pretty well off. So by 1500, if you ask somebody where modern economic growth is going to happen you know, a couple centuries henceforth, the low countries might be a place. So the Netherlands and Belgium would, would be a reasonable guess. But so would Spain and so would northern Italy. Again, it, England probably would not be your first guess. So the framework that I propose in this book is trying to explain both of these things. It is Europe versus the Middle East, particularly case I'm looking at, but also within Europe, why Northwestern Europe succeeded. So it's really asking why by 1700, certain parts of the world that eventually did become rich were in the position to do so. We're, uh, so just to, just to kind of recap, by modern economy, you were talking about these more urbanized places like the Netherlands and England. And in fact, as you pointed out before them, there were these Italian city-states mm-hmm. that were leading. And that's why we have something like the Merchant of Venice or this idea of Venice as this as this center of, of global trade and stuff like that. So we have relatively urbanized places which have a great focus on trade. And that is long distance trade is important there. But one thing you mentioned was that there are relatively developed markets for labor and capital. If you can explain this just a bit, what do we mean by developed markets for labor and capital? It can mean a few things. I think in terms of labor, you might think that, you know, because we're talking about an urban economy, we're talking about urban labor. So in the medieval Europe period, you'd be talking about, you know, guilds were one of the primary ways that, you know, the the markets for for labor were actually fairly restricted. So, you know, if if you did not work in a guild, for instance, you were going to be not not in great shape, probably not doing that well. But even uh, more generally, throughout much of you know, world history, uh, and including European and, you know, much of Eurasian history as well, markets for labor were not overly developed. And what that means is that, you know, people were not always free to move from one place to another, one job to another, you know, in general. And, and most people were working in agriculture, of course, in, in much of world history. But, you know, if you look at medieval Europe, for instance, if you were a peasant on a manor, you were not really free to move to another manor. You know, so if another lord would offer you 
a better deal for your labor, maybe fewer days working on the, the domain or something, you uh, would not really be permitted to take that. Um, so in that case, we'd say there were not free markets for labor for not just much of European history, but you know large parts of world history as well. And our markets for capital, even we might say, you know, when what we're talking about here are just basic markets for inputs, right? Uh, you know, they're just the the capacity to trade and buy different types of factor inputs into the production process is something I think it's something we take for granted today. But these have not also always existed, and, and it's mainly a function of trade, just trade being able to get to places. So in in an agricultural case, you might be thinking of there being a, a ton of different types of products you need. Well, in, in one case, to grow crops, but really it's the uh, you know the outputs of of a lot of agricultural products are also the inputs into other goods or other products. The capacity to get those out depend on the level of trade. And this is something that is more common to have it, it, you know, historically than labor market, than well-functioning labor markets, for sure. But to have a deep variety of goods, as well as really what we might end up thinking is more kind of advanced and even you know, technologically advanced goods that are end up being kind of capital inputs into uh, the production process is something that comes a little later in a lot of places. That is, I think, a very clear explanation. And that can then lead us to the next thing. In order to get this relative freedom of markets and capital of labor, trade, urbanization, as you pointed out, it's not just a question of Europe versus the rest of the world or Europe versus the Middle East. Even within Europe, there's a question of certain countries in the Northwest, the Netherlands and the and England being prime cases versus others that get left behind, even though, as you said, you know, we would not predict that Spain would get left behind or that these Italian states are going to get left behind, but they do. So there's one explanation that is, I think, very key and has actually driven a lot of investigation. And that is that of the, the famous German sociologist Max Weber and his book, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, where he notes that it's like you do, that it's the Netherlands and England are Protestant countries. And generally, the ones that kind of stay behind are Catholic countries. So Weber is trying to understand if there's something about Protestantism that does this. So maybe you can help us understand, first of all, for many of us, we may not understand what the difference is between Protestants and Catholics, and we don't have to get into too much of the doctrinal difference. But what is a Protestant and why would Weber think that that is an explanatory variable? And how do you differ from Weber? How, what do you think is good about Weber and what do you think is something that we just need to, to leave behind? So maybe I'll just start by uh, answering the most basic of the questions here is what is a Protestant? So, so in 1517, Martin Luther sparked what is known as the Protestant Reformation. Uh, where he had a series of gripes with the church and church doctrine. Eventually, his movement spreads throughout Central Europe, you know, modern day Germany and Scandinavia, a few other places. They break away from the, the Catholic Church, which had been more or less the only formal church in the West since the spread of Christianity. There is a break in the 11th century between uh, Western Roman Christianity and Eastern Christianity, which we now think of as Orthodox Christianity, other than Russian Orthodox or Greek Orthodox. But this is the big break in the West that happens. It begins in 1517. 
more or less most Western, you know, non-Orthodox Christians that aren't Catholic are some some branch of Protestantism. There's there are now you know hundreds and I think even thousands of different ch- types of churches or types of religions with, that consider themselves Protestants. So organizationally, there are definitely differences. Yeah, you know, they they the Pope is you know kind of the the head of the hierarchy for the Catholic Church. Most of the Protestant religions have nothing like a hierarchy like that. But that's the basic. That's basically what a Protestantism is. You know, it's about 500 years old. Um, some of the the the, the sects are much uh, younger than that. And so, getting to Weber's theory, well, I'll start by saying that this is I, you know, my view of him is it's the classic case of correlation but not causation. So he did pick up on something. So he uh, was born and lived in Prussia, you know, kind of northern German area, and. Prussia is this place where there are cities that some of which are predominantly Catholic, some of which are predominantly Protestant. So unlike, you know, a lot of countries, even in Europe at the time, it wasn't mainly one or the other. So like, for instance, Spain was almost all Catholic. Italy was almost all Catholic. Denmark would have been almost all Protestant. So would have England have been, uh, at least predominantly. Uh, but Prussia was not like this in that there was a lot of differences. And what he noticed is that around him, at least within Prussia, the places that were Protestant tended to be way better off than the places that were Catholic. And the other thing he doesn't harp on as much, but it is, it's totally true that if you look at the Dutch break away from Spanish rule in what is known as the 80 Years War, it begins in 1568. And in the process of doing so, there's a lot of Protestant doctrine, a lot of uh, Protestant propaganda that comes through this, and it becomes uh, this kind of newly formed Protestant nation. And soon after they break away from Spain, they become the world's leading economy for this type of stuff we've been talking about, namely you know, trade. Trade becomes a really big thing uh, for them in particular. And then eventually the Dutch, about 150 years later, so really with industrialization for sure, are surpassed by the, the, the British, who are also Protestant. And then, you know, and this actually happens right about when Weber's living. So Weber died, I believe, in 1920. The um, Protestant ethic book came out in 1905. So right around that time, right around World War One, is when the USA passes, surpasses uh, Great Britain. USA is also a predominantly Protestant country and was much more so back then than it is now. So really, ever since the be- very beginnings of the Reformation truly spreading, the world's leading economy has been Protestant. So again, this is, as I mentioned, you know, correlation. Now, the question is causation. What Weber's theory was is that it was about the doctrine, but not the general doctrine, but a very specific doctrine within and, and actually, particularly a branch of Protestantism is really Calvinism, named after Jean Calvin, who was uh, a reformer, uh, mainly mainly influential in the 1450s and 60s. So the, the Calvinists believed in predestination. And all that that means is that God had granted certain people to be what is called the elect, meaning that they were going to heaven even before they were born. Their lives would play out on earth, and then they would go to heaven. And this was predestined, had nothing to do with what one did on earth. But Weber notes that what he argues rather is that what this encouraged people to do was to show that they were one of the elect and to show that they were one of the elect. They would work hard. They would be thrifty. They would do all of these things that yeah, I, I do think we kind of associate with what he calls a capitalist ethic, uh, or what he, what he calls it—he uh, calls it the Protestant ethic. But we think about it as being associated with worldly prosperity, um, 
more so than I think than what we might specifically discuss is capitalism because uh, he doesn't actually get into like the details of capitalism and capital markets and things like that. But he is thinking about uh, things that that if if people in the society have these kind of cultural values, they probably are going to be relatively economically successful. Yeah, there's problems with this. There's major problems with this theory. Uh, <laughs> I, I should note that I am not the first person to point out problems with this theory. In fact, more or less since the theory came out for the last, say, at least a century, people have been kind of poking holes in it here and there. Um, there's some that, that think that there are aspects to it that are right, and I think there's more that don't, at least as it's studied seriously. So Tawny, for instance, in the 20s, kind of made what is a fairly obvious point, but that there were plenty of places prior to the spread of Protestantism where a capitalist ethic was, yeah, as you might think of it, it was very clear. So he points, you know, so for instance, to the Italian city-states, which were absolutely little uh, capitalist hubs. They were mainly formed by merchants for merchants, you know, for merchants to do their business. And these were around, you know, 12th, 13th century. Yeah, those are, that's centuries before Martin Luther lived. So to say that there's something unique about Protestantism that spurs on this ethic is missing a large part of the story. This isn't to say that culture doesn't matter, I don't think, but I do think that the way the, that the specific causal pathway that Weber suggests just doesn't really uh, hold up to snuff. But I will say this, to kind of tease this, I guess, is that I do think the Protestant Reformation did end up playing a, a fairly large role in driving the economic success of those regions, but not for any aspect of Protestant doctrine. Well, let's get into it. Let's not wait anymore. But maybe you can explain to us if Weber's main variable is culture, you're saying your main variable is political economy. So what exactly do you mean by political economy? And please tell us how you explain this. Yeah. So by political economy, I really mean here the way that the outputs of the political process are formed. In my book, I just make it simple and say laws and policies come out of the political process. And what I want to get at is what those look like and why they differ across time and space, and particularly why the types of laws and policies that favor commerce come about in certain political systems and not others. And by this, I can mean a lot of things. So a number of economists and economic historians look at the types of laws that really strongly protect property rights as being really important. There are certain types of investments in public goods, like transport networks, communications networks, sometimes even military support. Later on, we're talking about maybe naval support, because naval support can help protect merchants. So why these types of outcomes that really are crucial to modern economic success arise in certain contexts, but not others? That's the political economy outcomes I'm interested in. Now, how we get there. So the way I, I, I do this, and I try to kind of get it down to the bare bones. So you say, all right, well, what do people that rule, and I'll, we'll call them rulers. Yeah, that's the first word in the title of my book. But yeah, that's just the generic name. It can be king, it can be a shah, it can be a sultan, it can, it can be a tribal, order. you know, anyone that, you know, or it, it can even be multiple people in an oligarchy or something like this. But it's really, you know, those with the capacity to rule, how do they stay in power? Because regardless of what they want to do, they can't do it if they don't stay in power. So I break it down into, you know, there's two components or there's two things that rulers need. And they, gen- they tend to need both. 
And these two things are substitutes for each other, though, in that if you have more of one, you need a little less of the other. And it's what, I'll call, what I call legitimacy and coercion. So coercion is kind of, I think, straightforward and obvious. If the state doesn't have coercive power, even the threat of violence, it's going to be really hard to get people to follow the laws and policies of the state. And they don't necessarily have to have a monopoly on it, but they have to have more coercive power than the people they're trying to coerce. And again, you don't actually have to use it on people, but there just has to be the threat of it. Every state in the world that, that's not a failed state has this today. You know, if you break the law and you get caught, you go to jail. I mean, that there, and you could have even worse stuff done to you, and depending on what you do and where you're living. This is this is all that is meant by coercive power. They can coerce you to to do these things against your will. That's fairly straightforward. There are people in society that can provide this. You know, historically, both in the Middle East as well as in uh, Europe, you you would have military elites. You know, in medieval Europe, these would have been lords for the most part. And depending on what period in the Middle East and where you're talking about, you might you might be kind of the cavalry or something like that. The other aspect, though, is you, you can have coercion on the one hand, but coercion is expensive. It costs money to both set up the apparatus and pay these people off. The other thing that ends up tends to be less expensive, depending on how you get it, is legitimacy. And, you know, legitimacy is a, a very long-held concept in the social sciences uh, particularly political science and sociology. It's something that I think many of us have some concept of in terms of what it means. But I, I define legitimacy, political legitimacy at least, as an internalized belief that the person that's ruling has the right to rule and thus should be followed in terms of the laws and policies that this person is putting forth are legitimate. So this is something that I think is quite important. I think that we can kind of think of any political system and say, all right, is this, is this ruler an actually a legitimate one? And if not, they really have to have access to coercion. If they're highly legitimate, maybe they don't. Maybe people just follow them because this is the rightful ruler. Now, the question is, how do you get legitimacy? On the one hand, there are personal characteristics that one might have that make one more legitimate than others. And here, you know, you think in a monarchy, you could say, if I'm the eldest son of the previous king, I have the most legitimate claim to the throne. Um, that's the way monarchy works. Yeah, that's not the way it works, in, say, in a presidential system, in the United States, the eldest son of the president has no claim on any. Well, I will leave politics aside, I suppose. <laughs> but uh, th this is the idea that you have individual characteristics, but much more importantly, for the sake of my argument, is that there are people in society that for some reason or another can bolster the legitimacy of the ruler. And the, for some reason or other, it's kind of important here, because what I mean by this is that for historical reasons, these people have the capacity to influence the beliefs of others about the ruler's right to the you know, legitimacy. So to, to be a little more concrete here, in both, say, medieval Europe and Middle East at the time, and still largely true today, actually in both parts, but to different degrees, religious authorities were what I call legitimating agents. They had the capacity to provide some degree of legitimacy to the ruler. To, to the ruler. And they, you know, they can do this in a variety of ways. So the, the way that they actually might do it, it could be during the Friday, the Friday sermon. Right? If you mention the name, if the local imam mentions the name of the sultan in the Friday sermon and, and says prayers for the sultan, this is implicitly that imam supporting the sultan. And the reason that's important is that this imam has different access to the people than the sultan does. 
presumably the imam is actually much closer to the people and maybe either has the trust or the people believe that the local religious authority has some access to information maybe that they don't have, maybe about the righteousness of the ruler, something like that. And this is true you know, in Christianity as well. Generally, you know, it's not necessarily your local parish priest, but it's going to be higher ups like bishops, cardinals that really can confer legitimacy to rulers. Okay, so there are other people as well. So you might think of local lords, local local landed elites as having a lot of influence over the local populations. Importantly, very importantly for my book, is economic elites also have this capacity. Eventually what happens in Europe is that the economic elites band together in parliaments to negotiate with the king or the queen. And this is uh, this is important because, they, you know, much like these other people, but for very different reasons, they have the capacity to influence people in the way that in whether the degree to which they will be following the laws of a society or not. So the question is then, all right, so you have these people in society that can do this. They can provide some can provide legitimacy. Some can provide coercion. These people that can provide either of these are going to bargain with the ruler for it to do. So the ruler wants some of both of these because rulers themselves, I mean, how does one person stay in power? Well, you know, the, it's, there are institutional structures that allow them to do this. But these these institutions really what they're really doing is giving certain people in society power to help for their own benefit, prop up the ruler. All right. So the way I've envisioned this, you know, and this is where um, you know, some basic economic thinking, I think, really really comes in and really helps us think through these things. And you can think about it in very, very simple game theoretic terms. Namely, you have people that are strategically acting with each other. They're bargaining with each other. What the ruler wants is he want, he or she wants legitimacy or coercion. What these people are doing, these they're either providing legitimacy or coercion. In return, they want some say in the society's laws and policies. What the argument kind of boils down to is that a society's laws and policies are going to be reflective of two things. One is who these agents are at any given point in time. And the reason that this is important is that you know, military elites want different things than economic elites do, and they want different things that religious elites do. So what they're trying to get out of the bargain is just going to be different depending on who they are. The second thing that's important is their relative bargaining power. So, for instance, where religious legitimacy is quite effective, religious authorities are going to have a lot of bargaining power, meaning that their desires are going to be more greatly reflected in the society's laws and policies. That, from the framework perspective, is about it. Now we say, well, why do some societies have religious authorities being having a greater seat at the bargaining table versus economic elites versus military elites and so on. And this is where if, you know, if there's kind of one, what you might think of as doctrinal difference between the two religions, which is important for its role in political economy, you might say that, you know, the circumstances under which Islam came about were very different than those in which Christianity came about. Islam was formed conterminously with an expanding empire. And thus, we know that the, you know, there, and I, I mentioned a number of these kind of the early doctrine of Islam, both in the Quran, but also, you know, there, there are a number of hadith that suggest this, are very much one that, you know, a righteous ruler or a ruler who um, acts in accordance with Islam is, is 
is a correct ruler, is a righteous ruler, and one that should be followed. And conveniently for the uh, religious authorities, there's not really a religious establishment until, uh, you know, the earliest the ninth century, because there are, there are Khadiz, but this is a period, these first few centuries of Islam, where the doctrine of Islam is forming, the Khadiz are mainly just kind of providing some type of law and order. Over time, though, they become the primary interpreters of Islamic law. So, you know, conveniently, they're the ones who can essentially say whether a ruler is, is righteous or not. So this gives them a lot of bargaining power because, because Islam has a doctrine, more or less, that supports this idea, and it's very conducive to rule. Whereas Christianity was born in the Roman Empire for its first three centuries, it was a minority religion that was persecuted. And early Christian doctrine has nothing along these lines. In fact, early Christian doctrine is very much about you know, the separation between church and state, that there's a kingdom of God, and then there's the, the state. And really, you know, people should follow Caesar, but but not because you know the Caesar's rightfully ordained or you know, ordained by God. In fact, it's God that has a different set of rules. So because of this, Christianity is just not as good at legitimating rule. And I want to be clear, and, I'm, and I try to be very clear in the book, too. This by no means means that Christianity could not legitimate rule. It very, very clearly did in the in the medieval period. The way I'm thinking about it is like an economist. I'm thinking on the margin, which religion was better, or in the the context of the way I've been describing this bargaining game, might have been maybe more effective at legitimating rule. And I think you know throughout much of its history, the, the answer is very clearly is. All right. So what does this mean? It means that religious authorities tended to have a more important seat at the bargain table. And of course, this seat at the bargain table, this is, you know, it's just an analogy. There's no actual place that all of these people were meeting, even though in Europe, eventually, you know, when parliaments really formed, that was an actual place that people met. But even outside of parliaments, there would have been a number of different places that would have been affecting the types of laws and policies. And this is still true today that emerged. So you say, all right, well, what type of group of people at the bargaining table are best to have positive economic success and really what we might think of as the modern economy? And what I note, and I, you know, this is kind of, I think, one of the key insights that is gained from this way of thinking, is that having the economic elite at the bargaining table is really important. And this is not to say that the economic, having you know, the economic elite run the country is a good way of doing it. I think that's also actually very clearly not the case. But the reason that having them at the bargaining table is important is the things that they want for their own self-interest. And to be clear, this is the argument here. This is not to say that the economically desire something that for the, the better good of society or anything like that. They're looking after their own self-interest. But a lot of the things that they want just so happen to be the types of things that benefit commerce more broadly, because things that benefit commerce more broadly, almost by definition, help them. So things like secure property rights, things like investments in kind of major public goods, that really help facilitate commerce. Again, like I mentioned some before, like communication networks or transport networks. You know, these types of laws and policies that um, are just more likely to emerge when the economic elite have a greater seat at the bargaining table. And what I note is that, you know, so w- when the when religious elites, or and frankly, this is true of military elites as well, when either of them have a, a significant seat at the bargaining table, and the reason that they would is they're either really effective or relatively not that costly to use. When either of these things happen, the economic elite are mainly going to be shut out. 
So then the question you might say becomes, well, how did the economic elite eventually get a seat at the bargaining table in Europe? Because that's what the argument claims, but much less so in the Middle East. And uh, the argument here then becomes twofold. So first off, in Europe, after the fall of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century, there's a long period where there are the economic elite have more or less no political power. You know, eventually, really in the 8th and 9th century, feudalism starts to emerge. And there you have feudal lords who are the, they're essentially military elites. They're also the landed elites that have significant bargaining power with relatively weak leaders. The churches would be the, and the church would be the other primary legitimating agent. Whereas in the Middle East, you actually have a somewhat similar situation in that military elites, you know, on the one hand, you have slave soldiers, but you also have other military elites that have some degree of power. And then it's, it's religious elites. The difference here, though, is that, again, religious legitimacy, as long as we think it on the margin, it's a bit more effective in Islam. There's going to be more desire to use religious legitimacy. And one thing that's kind of crucial here, too, to, to keep in mind is that religious legitimacy is generally really cheap. In the sense that religious authorities, both in Islam and Christianity, have tended to want things like tax exemptions or suppression of rival religions, but they don't want the really expensive stuff. The economic elite want the expensive stuff because property rights are really expensive to give up. If you're a ruler and you have complete property rights over society, it gives you a lot of power. Um, you know, the economic elite want that, and you only give it up when you have more or less no other source. So. What happens in Europe is the beginnings of commerce start to reemerge. I mentioned this term, the commercial revolution, mainly in northern Italy, happens in the low countries, a few other places, central Europe, you know, modern day Germany, a bunch of rising independent cities. And with this, as these states are growing and becoming more economically powerful, rulers tend to, uh, they see a lot more to the economic elites in these little, they're minor areas at this point, in part because these people can provide a lot of tax revenue. And they do so at the expense of the church, you know, in, in part because the church was becoming powerful vis-a-vis them, but also because religious legitimacy just was not as effective as is in the Middle East. So even by, say, 1500 or so, prior to the Reformation, you have a situation where the rise of parliament had happened in Europe. This, be, this really happens in, say, the 13th and 14th centuries, which, you know, parliaments are places where elites, largely economic elites, but also, you know, religious elites can be in there as well, landed elites get together to negotiate with rulers, you don't really see anything like this. You don't in the Middle East in terms of kind of more organized, formal institutions that are there to bargain with, with rulers. And then the story goes, and this is where to kind of get back to the, the question you asked me about Protestantism, this is where the story kind of helps explain differences within Europe, is that the Protestant Reformation, when it happens... It gives a final blow to the church. So, you know, it happened in the early 16th century and throughout the 16th century. At this period, religious legitimacy is certainly less effective than it is in the Muslim world, but it is by no means, no means dead. The church still has power. They sell political power and getting excommunicated would be something that most Catholic rulers would not want. So in case you don't know, excommunicated means where the Pope essentially kicks you out of the church. So with the Reformation, what happens is, you know, as I mentioned before, it was still Christian, but it was a new religion outside of the Catholic hierarchy. So you know, now what, what had been a 1,500-year-old organization that had a very powerful hierarchy that could legitimate rule just doesn't exist anymore. 
they're replaced by Protestant religious authorities, but these people have way less power than the Turks, in part because in a lot of places they were under the thumb of the ruler. So what happens in Protestant places, and this is where I mentioned before where I think Weber had the correlation right, but not the causation, it's certainly true that the leading economies in the world ended up being Protestant more or less since the Reformation. But what what my book puts forth is that this it was because of the, the political economy, in this case meaning that what Protestantism really did that was important was it provided the death knell of the church and really raised the um, the prominence and importance of parliaments. And in parliaments, you see that the economic elite are all the more important. Again, they're not the only people that are important in making decisions, but their voice really becomes amplified after the Reformation. And almost immediately, I give you know, a number of examples in the book when discussing England and the Dutch Republic in particular, you almost immediately with the rise of the urban elite or you know, the commercial elite parliaments, you start to see laws and policies that really favor their interests. And again, you know, these are there. This tends to, it tends to align with things that portend economic success. Not always, though. I mean, I want to be very clear on that, too. That's a major caveat that some people have taken away or have not taken away from my book, rather, even though I try to make it a number of times that, you know, the economic elite, they're in it for themselves. You know, they're, they're self-interested, just like you know, a lot of we think of, with econ- you know, with economic agents. Um, and they want things that are bad for economic success, too, like monopolies and, you know, other kind of anti-competitive things. But for the most part, the big things they want are things that rulers are not often willing to give up unless unless they have to. So that is kind of a very long-winded way of saying is, is where we get is, is where the book kind of leaves off to saying, so, you know, by by 1700 or so, you have these Protestant places with highly functioning parliaments, even though, you know, the parliaments might have been corrupt. And actually, the English parliament was pretty corrupt in the 18th century. But the point is that, you know, it was still the economic elite were getting were having their voices heard much more so than in, in other parts of not just the Middle East, but Europe as well. Yeah, I think that's kind of the overarching story of the book. Now, uh, one thing I'd like to mention, too, is that there's also a few what I, I consider to be case studies on how the mechanisms in this framework work, where we're thinking of what is it like? What is the type of thing that the economic elite might either want or not want? Whereas maybe the religious elite, if the religious elites are powerful, maybe it's a type of law and policy that they that might be enacted because it benefits them. And two that I look at are um, differences in restrictions on taking interest on loans. And the other one is the uh, prohibitions on printing, the printing press. And these broadly follow the discussions that I'm having here. I, I would assume uh, some of your students and listeners might know a little bit about prohibitions on taking interest. You know, this is something that has always been around in Islam, but it's also always been fairly easy to get around. But part of the part of the idea here is that openly violating interest, that's more what I'm interested in here. The interest restrictions, that was not generally not something that could easily be done, at least at an institutional level, which it actually ends up being fairly important for having stuff like banks, whereas Christianity also had a ban on taking interest for over a millennium. It was also worked around uh, by various mechanisms, but eventually it just kind of falls to be a complete dead letter. And with that, once that happens, you do get the rise of banking, which is part of part of the story. But it's it, and I, I should be clear on this, that that I view this more as symptomatic of the, the more important institutional differences between the two regions rather than the, the cause of divergence itself. Whereas the printing press, uh, so the Ottomans kind of famously, uh, there's a little bit of uh, 
disagreement in the historiography literature, but from yeah, the, the stuff that I, I find to, I found to be convincing, the, the Ottomans at least we, we don't know of an Ottoman printing press uh, for the first you know, say 250 years. There's um, uh, after after they found out about printing, there are edicts that claim that printing uh, is punishable by death, and this is in part so the the book claims that this is this is due to you know, printing threatened threatened religious authorities. It threatened their monopoly, their inter- on intellectual production, on interpretation of Islam, and it threatened their position in society. And this this was you know something that all they had to do was look to Europe to see that you know. So the Reformation is kind of famously known as the child of the printing press. You know, it happens in 1517. The, the printing press is invented in 1450 and spreads for the next 50 years. So by about 1500, it's pretty well entrenched in Europe. And the, the Protestants, they use the printing press for propaganda. So this is part of the chapter of this book, which looks at this, is that the printing press kind of is something that, the fact that it spread in Europe, but didn't spread in the Middle East, had all these kind of unforeseeable consequences that go well beyond just one place having more books than the other. So I think that's a, and now a very long-winded way of kind of describing a lot of the book. No, I think, uh, I think that's amazing. What, what's really interesting about the way that you've explained things is you seem to have an immense amount of clarity, right? And I think that's the power of the kind of explanatory framework that you set up, the game theoretical model that you're talking about. And the fact that for you, there's these important fulcrums or these important axes both how laws and policies are formed. So who are the actors who are important in forming laws and policies? And then how are those implemented? And are those laws and policies, which in kind of economic lingo or in political science lingo, we call institutions. And by institutions, we just mean rules of the game. And so institutions can be formal laws and policies, and they can also be informal laws and policies or rules of the game. But the question that you're asking, and I think the question that many economists following Douglas North and some other important figures uh, will ask is, do the laws and policies, the rules, the norms facilitate commerce or do they get in the way of commerce? And if they get in the way of commerce, if, uh, you know, you pointed out that if the, the sultan has authority over all the land and then the local economic elite then cannot trade that land, cannot mortgage that land, cannot use it as collateral for a loan or anything like that, then that's getting in the way of marketizing that economy or, or, or making land into, into a form of capital in a sense. So that follows that if you then have a society in which religious elites may even be marginally more effective at legitimating the rule of rulers, then the rulers really don't have to give these concessions to the economic elites. They can just kind of hang on to their own prerogatives, their own power, uh, absolutism, I think we call it in Europe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you just keep saying to the religious elites, hey, guys, you you keep legitimating my rule. But but that means you also have to scratch the backs of these religious elites, right? You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. And uh, and that's the bargaining aspect that you're talking about. And, and there, for religious elites, there may be certain things, like a printing press may be something they don't like because it gets in the way of their power. And I think this is a, this is an argument that a lot of Muslims have made, too. A lot of Muslims, when they're talking about the Ottoman Empire and its decline, will bring up the printing press. They'll talk about how we ourselves kind of shot ourselves in the foot by not allowing ideas to spread, by not allowing that kind of technological know-how to spread in a certain way. And then if, if that does lead to the weakening of religious establishment in Europe, but not the weakening of the religious establishment 
in the Middle East or in the Ottoman Empire, then we can see then how the economic elites are weaker relatively in the Middle East than they are in Europe. And, and therefore, if economic elites are going to fight for their own interests, which they, they are going to, and they, they still will. I, I like how you, you brought up the U.S. president, but you kind of, yeah. <laughs> You had to step aside from that. Um, that's okay. We won't go into contemporary politics. But, uh, you know, if an economic elite, for example, becomes the ruler, then they're going to try and make laws that obviously will benefit them to the extent uh, of other bargaining agents in society. So I, I think, you know, is, is that a fair kind of summary of what you're arguing? That Look, this is... Yeah, that's a great summary. And in fact, you know, I mean, uh, I hadn't actually really thought about that last specific point you got to make out how, how um, modern day U.S. really kind of is uh, almost is a perfect example of you know, having the economic elite is they're going to do things that aren't always good. So that's definitely not the argument I'm making. <laughs> yeah. No, and I, I think one thing that I didn't maybe stress enough, too, is that th- this argument is not based on the religious elite having bad economic intentions or having having views that are antithetical to economic development. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. So for instance, something I mentioned that both Muslim religious authorities and Christian religious authorities traditionally and still do, they had a big say in the state's poor relief efforts and supporting the poor. And generally, this is something that's good for economic development too. I mean, having some type of safety net is something that most economists would say, all economists would say that that's something that benefits an economy because, you know, it allows people to take risks or, you know, it, it certainly reduces social tension, things like that. So that would be an example of religious authorities having a having some desires that benefit economic development. But, you know, stuff like certainly having negative views on taking interest on loans or negative interest on interest on printing would be what we might think was negative ones. And the, the interests of most religious authorities are actually probably just relatively neutral to economic development. In fact, you know, having having military elites at the bargaining table likely is even worse than having, you know, an overabundance of religious elites in terms of its economic development, because you, know, you get a, a militarized state that, you know, that can have a whole, whole host of downsides. It's not just that it's not saying something specific about Christianity and Islam. It's not even saying anything specific about religion, except that, you know, the I think the fairly uncontroversial statement that religious authorities tend not to care really one way or the other about the big ticket items that the economic elite care about. So it's really interesting that you bring up military elites as well, especially for a contemporary period, because in Pakistan right now, so if in the United States, as of this recording, the, the thing is about an economic elite being the, the person yeah. in power and not paying his his or her taxes, then in Pakistan, the big story right now is how civilian politicians are trying to contest the domination of the military elites in Pakistani society. Uh, so it's, it's really interesting that your argument then has contemporary relevance as well. But I kind of want to try and see if we can we can apply it to different places. When you talk about a modern economy and some of its components, like a well-developed trade, well-developed commercial sector. So, you know, one of the issues you bring up is if religious elites are more successful in banning interest on loans, then that can get in the way of banking and really commercial credit, which then you need if you want big trade, if you want yeah, like yeah. To, to form big corporations or big, big kinds of things. 
But, you know, what I'm thinking about is maybe South Asia. And to the extent that I know about medieval South Asia, Mughal Empire, but also when the Mughal Empire starts to collapse in the 1700s, there's new polities like the Maratha Empire and Tipu Sultan and Hyder Ali's Mysore. But my understanding is that, that markets were quite well developed in Mughal India. Maybe there was not really that much need for labor, but labor was also not coerced maybe in the same way as it was in Europe. So if somebody wanted to hire labor, it might have been easier in India than in Europe. But certainly commercial sectors of banking, they had, they could charge huge interest rates and they did. And also not just the Mughals, but also other Muslim polities. Whenever they wanted to do something they wanted to do, they would just put the religious elites in jail, literally. Yeah. I think uh, like Imam Abu Hanifa spent some time in jail, in prison. Ibn Taymiyyah also spent time in prison because he was critical of these rulers. So, you know, if I push back a little bit yeah. to be like, actually, you know what, if, if sultans wanted to get rid of the religious elites, you know, they could just get rid of them and, and select their own religious elites and be like, this guy is actually more conducive to my needs. And then, you, again, you do have a fairly well-developed commercial credit, say, at least in India, maybe not in Ottoman Empire. And also local elites and economic elites could press their claims. So if you look at the Mughal court, or even if you look at the Ottoman court, uh, that was a space where different local elites and religious elites and economic elites had some form of representation. Oh, sure. And could bargain with the with the sultan or with the with the shah. So so you know this is me saying hey trying to paint an alternative picture that says look it doesn't seem like by the period you're talking about 1600 1700 there's really that much of a difference between what you're describing in Protestant Europe and what I'm seeing maybe in Mughal India or in certain parts of of the Middle East. Yeah, I think that that like kind of what I've been describing here it's all one of degree in that I think for the sake of you know thinking about it it helps to think uh, one one society is one thing, the other society is different. But you know, it, it, there's we live we live in a world of gray area and you know, it's kind of spectrum in the sense that certainly you know the economic elite didn't have zero power in in any part of not just the Muslim world, but really any society anywhere. I mean, if you have if, when people have enough economic power, that does tend to bleed to some degree into political power, just because that finances. So let me start with one of your very last points when talking about you know, the, the courts. Yeah, there were definitely people there that, that wouldn't have just been just religious or militarily. You might might think of some of these people as economic elite. But the one thing I would push back on is that, yeah, I think it's fundamentally different to have those people whispering in the, the sultan's ear than it is to have it be more institutionalized via, say, a parliament. And what the institutionalization does is it makes... Those people, you know, on the one hand, more accountable to the, the, the broader population. It actually makes it so that it, it's much harder for rulers to renege on whatever types of promises or policies that are put forth. So I do think there is a difference between having an institutionalized, you might say, the, to use the terms of economics and political science, constraint on executive rule rather than kind of what I would say is a more informal one with the court. Now, yeah, as you mentioned, I am not an expert in South Asian history. I have done a few papers on colonial periods, so I, yeah, I've read quite a bit up on that period. But really, in the end, what I think is important, we can take my framework and move backwards. And the last step to really get, you know, portent economic success in the long run 
is for the economic elite to have some seat at the bargaining table. Again, not a, not the strong. It doesn't have to be. You don't want it to be a hundred percent, but you want it to be some percent, but not zero. Getting there is the question. So, a place I do actually know even a little bit more about is, let's say, China. This was also the case that the economic elite really didn't have a certainly any type of institutionalized means by any means of constraining the emperor. And there, you know, there was a different mechanism. There, you know, you had a very strong bureaucracy that that actually tended to kind of even outlast dynasties. So the the very very general mechanisms still work. It just in some cases religion matters. In some cases, religion matters less. And I do think that that given the histories that of certainly the Middle East and Western Europe, religion did play a role again in the political political economy of these two regions. I don't want to make a strong statement about South Asia, but, you know, on the other hand, because you do have, you know, minority rulers and all I mean by minorities, you know, when you have a Muslim ruler ruling over a primarily Hindu population, you're going to have, it's just going to be a very different dynamic. Again, though, to the extent that you don't have, for a variety of different reasons, a, a place where the economic elite can organize and const- institutionally constrain the ruler, you just, yeah, th- those outcomes aren't going to happen. This is not at all to say that that economic elites didn't exist. Clearly, they existed. And they exist in all parts of the world. That trade didn't exist. It certainly did. But it's also, you know, the degree to trade, the degree of trade, the degree of free flow of, of goods and services, things like that. It just, yeah, it, it, it's it's all a matter of thinking on the margin. It's all a matter of degree. Again, that, that's probably not necessarily the most satisfactory answer in the world, but I think it's the the one that's kind of most in the spirit of what my theory would put forth given, again, given my relatively limited knowledge of medieval South Asian history. No, and I think that that's very important. I think that the kind of conversation that we're having right now is one where we're trying to be respectful to our own blind spots, right? This is stuff that we don't know. And what we're trying to do, as what you're trying to do as an economist and what I might try to do as a political scientist is that we try to build these theories that we want to argue have general applicability, but we also want to be humble about it and be like, this is the thing I studied and this is what I think are the general principles. Now, I've done my work. It is up to you to take this and try and hammer it against your own context and see how strongly does my theory stand up? How strongly does it not stand up? And maybe my theory is more appropriate to a specific context and maybe it's not as appropriate to a different context, in which case then, you know, let's let's rethink the theory. There's no problem with that. That's kind of how science works. And that might also be something uh, for students or listeners who are reading Dr. Jared's book to be like, actually, let's let's think through how this may apply. And if that book is available in Urdu, which it is, then maybe people are reading it and thinking, how does this apply to the Mughal Empire? How does this apply to even Pakistan in a contemporary place? So I think that's part of the endeavor or essay or try that is uh, building theory and doing science in a sense. Yeah, I think you're right. And I mean, I think you know, the, what, what you would think of as you know, the, the, the basic principles of science, though, in terms of, or, or really, I think the, ba- the basic principles of quality academic work, saying what you can say and trying to substantiate as well as you can, but not overstepping. And you know, the, you know at least I'd like to think I don't have that tendency. Um, just because I think it's not a good one. And we, we can't be specialists, uh, especially as historians or economic historians in every part of the world at every period of time. We can know something about it, but the, the type of research it took to you know, just become as well-versed as I am in 
stuff in just the two rather large parts of the world, you know, it was decades worth of work at this point. So, yeah, I, I agree with everything you said there. And I, and I think it's just so so necessary to reiterate that point that overstepping is, one, I, in my view, one of the worst things that academics can do. Is, uh, claiming applicability to situations where maybe you don't have as much information on or you, you don't know as much about is it. just, it's a, it can be a very dangerous game, especially when people then take that as, as good information when it might not be.